Can you present your patient, Lowell? Sure. This is a 51-year-old executive who has been quite healthy. He started to feel ill in January of 2006. He just felt tired. He exercises a lot, very active life. He went to see his family physician, had a nuclear stress test, which was negative. He thought he just had to work out more. Finally started to get palpitations and felt really terrible. Came to the emergency room when he was found to have a hemoglobin of 7.8. So he underwent endoscopic evaluation, had a little stomach ulcer, not much. He eventually got a CAT scan, which showed a lesion around the jejunum and multiple lesions in the liver. He was operated on by one of our general surgeons and underwent resection of a primary tumor, which was a GIST. This was just around the time, I guess, we started to hear about the mutation data. So I initially started him on Gleevec at this time, Gleevec standard dose of 400 milligrams daily. I sent him up to a major cancer center here in Florida where he saw a sarcoma oncologist and he had a mutation analysis done, was found to have a mutation in exon 9 of CKIT. So it was recommended that he change his Gleevec dose from 400 to 800. So throughout most of 2007, he was taking 400 milligrams twice a day, tolerating it quite well. Went back to exercising, felt entirely well, was running around raising money for just tumor. You told me he was running marathons? Actually did a, like a 100-mile bike ride or something to raise money for GIST. So he was, you know, back to work. He would occasionally get a little bit anemic at this dose, required some Procrit here and there, but otherwise doing quite well. He got a CT scan in September of 2007, which was illustrating some of these points, not clear really whether he was progressing or not. One area in the liver looked like it might be getting a little bit larger at this point of the multiple liver lesions, nothing anywhere else. So he had a PET scan done, which did show that it was hotter. It was recommended that he consider something directed towards the liver locally, and it was felt he could either have a surgical exploration and resection of the lesion that was increasing, or RFA or chemoembolization. He went up to a major cancer center in New York and had resection of the largest lesion. Continued to do well on 800 milligrams a day of Gleevec. What was seen when they resected it? Was viable tumor? That was viable tumor, yes. At this point, would you have continued the imatinib, Dr. Dimitri? Yes. Okay. So he continued to feel entirely well. Obviously, he got close follow-up. At this point, he lives in a different part of our region and was seeing one of my partners in the southern part of our practice. He had a follow-up CAT scan done in mid-December, which showed the previous surgical site looked good. Some of the lesions on the other side of the liver were looking a little bit bigger than before. So nothing too drastic, nothing outside of the liver. So the last time that I heard about him, which was around the end of December, his oncologist in our practice who was seeing him was trying to decide between leaving him on Gleevec at 800 milligrams a day, switching him to Sutent, or going up to see one of the oncologists in the panel about going on to a clinical trial. So that's kind of where things are. How's the thinking is that he has progressive disease at this point? The thinking is, based on CT, is that there's uh, progression and that perhaps sunitinib would be the treatment of choice off of a clinical trial. Dr. Trent, can you talk about the sort of natural history of Exxon 9 and what you might be thinking in this situation? Exxon 9, it's in this extracellular domain, and nobody's exactly clear as to what it does to make the molecule active, kit active, but it clearly does. And the other peculiar thing about Exxon 9 is that there seems to be this dose-response relationship in the study by Maria Dibiak-Richter comparing 800 to 400 milligrams. 
So what I've done with a few patients, and I only have two patients that I've tried this with, is that I've offered them a third option of increasing their Gleevec up to 1,200 milligrams. And interestingly enough, in both patients, I was able to either slow the growth of their disease or actually decrease the density and slightly shrink the size of the tumor. In fact, I have one patient who I started on 400 milligrams, and he progressed, uh, increased him up to 600 milligrams, stabilized, progressed, went to 800 milligrams, stabilized, eventually progressed, went to 1,200 milligrams and stabilized for about... Oh, when he was at 800 is when we started doing mutation testing and found that he had exon 9 mutation. And so he's now up to alternating every other day between 1,200 and 1,600 milligrams. And he has no growth of his disease. And some of this is his choice because he doesn't want to switch drugs. He doesn't want to go on a clinical trial. He really wants to push imatinib as far as he can. And so that's what we've been doing. Clearance with imatinib also seems to decrease over time. There's limited studies in GIST, but if you look at somebody's serum concentration of imatinib in the first couple of weeks of therapy, and then you look at their serum concentration after two years, there seems to be a little bit of a downward trend also. So that may play again into the dose-response relationship with imatinib for patients who have exon 9 mutation. So that's been one of my approaches with those patients. What do we know about this kind of dosing in terms of efficacy and side effects? Has it been reported in the literature? I don't believe so. In the couple of patients with exon 9 mutation that I've treated, I think there is some efficacy. It's not been a home run where a patient has had a PR or a complete response, but it certainly has had some activity. And in these couple of patients, the side effects have been manageable. Now, your patient didn't want to switch drugs. In this situation, I assume the patient is probably open to whatever you might he, recommend. He's open to that. What would you actually recommend, Dr. Trent? I guess if the patient really has no side effects or minimal side effects at 800 milligrams, I would try 1,200. Dr. Dimitri? So one of the things that's interesting about exon 9 mutations is that think about KIT as a periscope going right through the cell membrane. The exon 9 mutation is on the outside, as Dr. Trent has said. That means the inside is normal. The inside, the kinase, the action part of the enzyme is actually wild types, totally normal enzyme. And one thing we do know biologically is that imatinib is not a great inhibitor of wild type kit. It's very good against the mutant kits with exon 11 and some of the other internal machinery problems. But the exon 9s have a wild type kinase domain. And it makes sense that imatinib doesn't shut it down very well from all the enzymatic studies we know. So that means two things. One, it means you might need a higher concentration of it to actually stuff the mouth of the enzyme if it's a wild-type enzyme inside. And that's true for exon 9. It's probably true for wild-type kit as well, where there's no detectable mutation inside. But what we also know is that sunitinib is a much better wild-type kit inhibitor. So here's a wild card. Now we've got a patient who's probably got about as much mileage as you can get out of imatinib. Maybe you can get a little bit more mileage out of a little bit more dose Maybe not. This may also be a role, interestingly, for drug levels. We actually are used to testing drug levels and Dilantin and other things. Why don't we test imatinib drug levels? We've just never done it. Marilee Gorin at University of Pittsburgh has always been very generous about allowing us to do this for patients. And this might be one of those unusual situations where one could do that. And if it's unusually low, 
consider going up on the dose. If it's unusually high, maybe more rationale simply to get off that drug and to get onto another better wild-type kit inhibitor like sunitinib. I will also say that some of the newer drugs that are around, nilotinib, is also very interesting, binds slightly differently, and may actually bind differently to these patients' kit molecules as well. So that's another one. And there are many, many other kinase inhibitors in clinical trials. So clinical trials can be inconvenient for patients to participate in from a distance. So it's it's a call. We at this point probably would switch the patient to sunitinib, but I might be tempted to get a drug level. Is there any data on nilotinib and satinib? clinical data, would you advise in using those in any cases? Or I would only do that after sunitinib failed, to be honest with you. I think there are certainly data. There are very early data. We have done the phase one with the satinib, published that at ASCO, and I must say, maybe we just picked the wrong 30 GIST patients, but of those patients who had had other kinase inhibitors like imatinib, we were not overly excited about what we were seeing. Again, knowing that GIST, once imatinib fails, turns into myriad different diseases based on what other kinds of mutations add to the initial mutation. Can you talk a little bit about what we do know about the mechanisms of resistance to imatinib? We actually know a lot. The vast majority of patients, once imatinib fails will have a second mutation that comes on board. If the first mutation is exon 11, it's not uncommon for the next mutation, unfortunately, to show up down in the kinase domain of exon 17, which basically renders every small molecule we have useless for all intents and purposes. There are some secondary mutations that show up on the same strand of DNA, basically, and then encode the protein, where there'll be an exon 13, where the ATP binding place has a mutation that excludes Gleevec, but sunitinib can actually go in there and still bind. So there's wonderful structural studies that are now being done to explain this kind of resistance. The problem is it's not so easy as it is an infectious disease because once people develop resistance to the first kinase inhibitor to imatinib, it's not uncommon for them to have multiple different clones throughout the body. And that's part of why our field is not routinely recommending, as a matter of standard practice, rebiopsying people. Because if you biopsy one lesion, you may have a good sense of what the new mutation is in that lesion, but a lesion two centimeters away might be totally different. So I think here's where clinical savvy and clinical acumen probably still accounts for everything, and where when you're switching doses or switching drugs, you still have to watch the patient carefully, and we don't have a perfect test, even on biopsy. In terms of Star War methodology, will we be able someday to have a blood test, for example, to try to get a sense of the range of kit mutations that the tumor might be spitting out into the bloodstream? Absolutely. That's some very exciting technology and development, and we hope to see some of that come on in the future. Circulating tumor cells? Circulating DNA free DNA floating through the bloodstream where you can amplify it and find different types of kit mutations in the blood. Dr. Trent, can you talk about what we know about sunitinib in GIST? So sunitinib is now approved in second line for the treatment of GIST for patients who have progressed on imatinib or are intolerant to imatinib. So there was a phase two study and now a big phase three study that really showed that sunitinib does have activity. And in the phase three study, sunitinib was compared to placebo or best supportive care. And the patients were randomized in a two-to-one fashion. And the patients that were treated with sunitinib had a progression-free survival, a median, I guess it was a median progression-free survival of about six months. And that's better than the control arm, which was only about six weeks. 
And on top of that, there were responses seen. There were a lot of pet responses seen. So it clearly has activity, and I've used it in a fair amount in my practice, and it has reasonable efficacy in some patients. A lot of patients don't respond to it, but it has efficacy in some. The other thing about sunitinib is the side effect profile is a little different than it is with imatinib. With imatinib, patients do get a lot of edema and periorbital edema, and it can be a big problem. Patients that are treated with sunitinib don't tend to get that same degree of edema or electrolyte imbalances or problems with fluid shift. But sunitinib does pose a risk for hypothyroidism and hypertension due to its inhibition of the VEGF receptor. But it clearly does have efficacy and is used in second line commonly. What's the schedule, and what do you actually see clinically in terms of quality of life with these people? Well, the schedule, interesting question, the schedule that is approved was 50 milligrams a day for four weeks on, two weeks off. And that 50 milligram daily dose is difficult for many patients to tolerate, and they really embraced the two weeks off that they had. But in the study, during the two weeks off, patients had flare in their PET scan. So if you do a PET scan after four weeks of sunitinib, there's a great PET response in some patients. And then they take two weeks off, and then by the time they've recovered and start the drug again, their PET is active again and their tumor is flaring up. So many people in the GIST community of medical oncologists are using the 37.5 milligram daily dose which is much, much better tolerated. And that way, a patient tolerates it and is able to take it daily. And you're able to avoid this interruption of kinase inhibitor therapy, which we've come to realize is not the best idea to do in this disease. Any other questions? Yeah, are you seeing in the sinidinib the same kinds of responses that one sees in Gleevec? In other words, you'll see person on for 20 months with excellent response? And if not, do you think that's because we're not using it in first line? And what do we know about sunitinib in first line? I think the best answer to that is we are seeing those patients generally in the very small subset of people who go on it because they're imatinib intolerant. So that's essentially imatinib unchallenged. So somebody who goes on imatinib after three or four weeks has some awful skin rash or some reason that the doctor says, medically, I can't continue you on this. Let's go to the sunitinib. So they've essentially never had benefit from imatinib. Those patients are the ones in our experience who can have enormous, you know, three-year, four-year benefit from sunitinib because they never had any problem up front. I think the sunitinib data is inevitably contaminated by the fact that we are taking now patients, the majority of whom started with exon 11 mutations, imatinib and sunitinib sensitive. Then on top of that, they got a secondary mutation, including this awful you know, exon 17 mutation from hell that nothing treats. And so that will make sunitinib second-line data, it'll make any small molecule second-line data look very, very inferior to any upfront drug. And one might ask, why haven't we done an upfront comparison now? And that's an interesting question. What do you think you'd see? I think it will be done. The study will be done. I don't know how, whether it'll be done in this country, but it will be done. I think the question is, it's going to be a trade-off there between toxicity, long-term control of disease, and whether the multiple targets of sunitinib inhibits, including VEGF receptor, add something to imatinib. So in terms, just purely in terms of anti-tumor efficacy, what would your guess be? I think sunitinib is at least as good, if not better, than imatinib up front, but the toxicity profile is going to be harsher. What about the combination or a sequence? 
combination runs the risk of giving both drugs inadequately. So I'm not sure any of us are all that excited about a combination because they are so similar in many ways. I think sequence is an interesting question that certainly could be studied. We've talked about that as a next-generation adjuvant study, in fact. Would that be an interesting and important question to ask in the adjuvant setting? There was a study at ASCO last year looking at combining imatinib with another drug, Tosigna or nilotinib. And in that study, clearly the side effect profile was worse in the combination, and there didn't really seem to be much gained in efficacy. Now, this was a small phase one study, so there weren't a lot of patients on it, maybe 50 patients on it, but there was really no difference in efficacy in nilotinib alone versus nilotinib combined with imatinib. So I guess the big question in adjuvant therapy, and Bert's already alluded to that, is the duration of therapy. So we know patients benefit with one year of adjuvant therapy, and then basically 6 to 12 months after that, the curve starts dropping off and is in parallel in all of the subgroups. So we have a small phase 2 study looking at adjuvant imatinib in primary GIST patients for two years. And in our small study, not a single patient progressed during the two-year interval in which they were on imatinib. And then after they discontinued their imatinib, they start dropping off basically about six months to a year after they stopped their adjuvant imatinib. So it's my feeling that at least two years, two years is probably better than one year for adjuvant therapy. Whether or not two years is better than five years or lifetime, I don't know. And which patient populations do you want to commit to lifetime? So those are some of the questions, really the duration of adjuvant imatinib, and then adjuvant sunitinib maybe a question also that will be investigated. And then also regarding the dose of imatinib. 400 milligrams versus 800 milligrams for those patients with exon 9 mutation who have their tumor resected. It's going to be a very small population that has that done, but should these patients be treated with 800 milligrams instead of 400 milligrams? Is there any indication from the original adjuvant trial that the people who relapse after one year do worse when you try to recapture them? Is there the sensitivity the same? Is it? There's no survival difference. As far as responses in individual patients, I don't know from that trial, from my personal experience, they still respond. Anecdotally, that's been everybody's experience, but one of the concerns would be that people who fail fastest might have the resistance mutations from the get-go. Maybe they have the Exxon 17 built in from ground zero, or maybe they have the Exxon 9 and already have developed something else. It's a very important question. I don't think it's long enough to really know that yet. It's part of what we hope to capture in the longer-term follow-up of that study. Again, looking at the French study, those patients who were on the interrupted group, they stopped after a year. There wasn't a lot. I mean, this wasn't like a huge patient trial. There's maybe 26, 28, 30 patients. I think two patients who went back on imatinib, two patients progressed So they, you know, one could say, well, maybe they would have had a difficult time anyway, but a small percentage of patients really failed reintroduction of drug. Is there work being done in trying to prevent this resistance, for instance, this Exxon 17, this development of this kind of resistance? It raises an important question about whether those Exxon mutations are present in low copy number at the very first day the patient presents. 
similar to what we think about CML. When you look for rare copies of the resistant mutants, the gatekeepers built in, you can PCR them out of the initial population. That seems to be the case. So how do you prevent the emergence of resistance to those? Well, obviously, you need drugs that are active against those. So that's part of why drug development is so active in this field with lots of other small molecule kinase inhibitors and lots of other new drugs, mTOR inhibitors, PI3 kinase inhibitors, you know, HSP90 inhibitors, you name it. We're trying different molecular pathways to find something that will go after these kinase inhibitor resistance subsets with the ultimate aim of developing combinations. Most of us in the field feel that we're going to need triple therapy for GIST the same way we need a triple therapy for HIV before we really can think about curing people. What has been seen with the mTOR inhibitors? So the mTOR inhibitors are very interesting. We were part of a multicenter phase one and two study where an mTOR inhibitor was added into imatinib with imatinib-resistant GIST. And we still have a patient four years later who has stable disease after clearly progressing on imatinib alone. That's been our experience also in adding mTOR inhibitors on top of sunitinib in unusual anecdotal patients, that every now and then somebody's sensitive to mTOR inhibition in combination with the kinase inhibitor. We just haven't been able to figure out who those people are. We don't have a predictive biomarker because if we could identify that, we'd have an, easy way to do, an easier way to develop it. What was seen in terms of toxicity when you combined the mTOR inhibitor with the imatinib? It depended on the dose and the schedule. So you can get some worse thrombocytopenia when you mix it with imatinib, and certainly you can get some worse mucosal problems. mTOR inhibitors are occasionally associated with some mucosal ulcers and pain. But it was manageable. You know, I think that we haven't jumped all over that, partly because we've been very interested in testing other molecular pathways as well, but we still have a lot of faith in the mTOR pathway as useful in this. I really like the way you try to simplify for people like me. Can you take a shot at saying how imatinib and an mTOR inhibitor kind of be working in the cell? Well, imatinib, I simple-mindedly think of this as a line from the top of the cell all the way into the command center of the nucleus. So if KIT or PDGFRA are up at the top and they're broken and they're just constantly signaling inside the cell, for most of those cases, imatinib or sunitinib can shut off that signal and everything downstream of that gets shut off too. But now if you've got a lot of the tumor cells where most of it's shut down, but some rogue cell develops a second mutation that turns that switch back on, now you're looking for something else to interrupt the signaling lower down in that cascade. And mTOR is sufficiently lower down that it might be able to add to that in that resistant clone.